Podcast Movies Edition, presented by Phil Hinton. Hello and welcome to the July Movies Podcast. Coming up, we discuss the Avengers, Indiana Jones box set and Dial M for Murder in 3D, which are due on Blu-ray soon. We also review Extremely Loud and Incredibly Close on Blu-ray, at the movies, Simon gives us a review of The Amazing Spider-Man and have Hollywood lost their way with formulaic remakes, reboots and reimaginings. And joining me on this podcast is Mark, Matt, Simon and Steve. Good evening, guys. Good evening. Evening, Phil. Hey, Phil. Evening, Phil. So we kick off with some Blu-ray news and uh, The Avengers, which we talked about last month in the podcast as a cinema release. It's due out on the 25th of September. Uh, so who's looking forward to this one and who's going to be picking it up? Yeah, I'm, I'm definitely looking forward to it, Phil. Uh, I didn't actually get a chance to see it in the cinema, so uh, it'll be my chance to see it for the first time. Um, apparently, it, it was coming out in 2D and 3D, um, Blu-ray, and apparently it's going to be 30 minutes of deleted uh, scenes that uh, Joss Whedon shot for the film. The original cut was, I think, about three hours long, cut down to two and a half hours for the theatrical release, but uh, there's going to be about 30 minutes of deleted scenes and also a 10-minute short film that's been made specially for the uh, for the Blu-ray. So quite excited. I mean, you know, it's been a gigantic hit. It's already made over 600 million in the US and 1.5 billion worldwide. It's just been, you know, it's almost up there with Titanic in terms of numbers. So uh, staggering success. And uh, yeah, I'm definitely looking forward to it. And you haven't seen it? Unbelievable. It's a fantastic film. I think Truly. I'll just wait for the Blu-ray. Well... Yeah. Okay. I mean, you, you guys with your your big screens. Yeah, I can understand. Yeah, exactly. But, I mean, I've um, I'm I'm only have a mere fifty fifty inch plasma. Um, but to see it on the big screen was fantastic. Although, when I saw it at the the Epsomodian, the sound was pretty poor. Actually, I didn't think there was a huge amount of bass involved in it. Particularly when they started smashing up the uh, the town. What was the city they smashed up? Whatever it was, doesn't matter. Um, there wasn't a huge amount of bass, and I thought, oh, God. Um, and I started going to Kingston now, um, and it's a much, much better soundscape. So that's why I'm looking forward to it, to get it its proper sound. Yeah. Uh, I'd just like to make a point that uh, it's available in 2D and 3D. It was not shot in 3D, so please don't buy the 3D disc. You know, stick with the 2D. <laughs> Conversions suck. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's not a, a genre I ever really got into, to be honest with you, but again, I am looking forward to seeing it. It's certainly one that I will... Uh, be getting on Blu-ray as well, just to maybe relive some of my childhood comic book moments. Again, looking forward to seeing sort of um, uh, what the transfer is going to be like as well, and we'll seeing if we can get the sound rattling the radiators off the wall again, or whether it's going to be a bit more laid back. I think it'll be pretty happy. I don't think it's going to be laid back. If I had to hazard a guess. <laughs> I'm hoping it'll be pretty heavy. I'm pretty much in the same boat as Steve here. Um, didn't see it at the cinema, but very much looking forward to, to seeing it um, or picking it up on Blu-ray. Um, I wasn't particularly bothered until I heard Joss Whedon's name attached. Um, I've kind of built up this filter now to try and blank out all the comic book films coming out. They just generally kind of go past me in a blur now. I, I don't really get excited about them anymore, but <gasps> hearing... Well, really? it's true. 
Yes, yes. Batman but... in a few days' time. No? 20, yeah, 20th of July, is it Batman? Well, yeah, that's another issue, you know. Uh, Batman doesn't technically count as a superhero film, but... Ow! You know, <laughs> well, it's got a guy in canon. tights. I don't know what more do you want. <laughs> what superpowers does he have... Well, that's always the case about Batman, isn't it? He doesn't have any superpowers. Exactly. Nor does Iron Man. Iron Man doesn't doesn't have any superpowers either. Yeah, yeah, fair point, fair point. And I don't classify him as a superhero either. But that's another can of worms. They're just men in suits. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but um, it's it's one of those films that it's it's done so spectacularly well, and it's it's just getting absolute rave reviews, and it's it's great to see a film that's of this ilk that's actually getting praised for its script it's not just getting praised for the fact that it's it's big it's bombastic it's got you know men in spandex flying across the screen and it's got action and and it's it seems to be very much a, an all-round blockbuster which I, I think is great yeah i mean i'm really pleased for joss whedon actually because i've always liked him it's nice to see him get a hit at long last because he's had some pretty bad luck i think in terms of uh, tv shows being cancelled and serenity didn't, didn't get do the box office it frankly should have done uh, when it came out in cinema so uh, for a second feature not bad one and a half billion is it really not bad at all and thoroughly well deserved because it's a stonking film it's really great fun so that's the avengers uh, 25th of september for the region a release and 17th of september for the region b release a uh, big box set coming uh, in September, which I know everybody here is looking forward to. Indiana Jones. Um, let's hope the fourth film is not in there. Let's just hope it's the three films. Can anybody no, tell me if it is? In there, oh, drat. <laughs> Never mind. Um, it's coming out 8th of October, Region B, a little bit earlier on Region A on the uh, 18th of September. Um, I guess we don't really have to talk about this, do we? Film classics? Well, I, I, I love Raiders, but I'm not a big fan of the rest of them, to be honest. I have to buy a box set at 69 quid for one film, to be honest, which is kind of annoying. In fact, that's 69 quid and the 22 film James Bond box set is going to be 89 quid. Once again, I feel the uh, the hand of uh, Lucasfilm in my pocket. Yeah. How can you only love Raiders, though? Temple of Doom is boring because they don't go anywhere. They just stay in that damn temple the whole film. Crusade is just a remake of Raiders and King, King Crystal Skull is just abominable. So uh, Raiders is the only good one. You don't think Crusade brings something to the table with the, the well, interplay Connery's with Connery? Right. Yeah, but at the end of the day, it's still not. It's just a rehash of Raiders, like like Jedi's a rehash of Star Wars. <laughs> Matt, your thoughts? Uh, well, personally, I'm looking forward to uh, Crusade as well. I, I, I would agree. I think the second one is a bit. Well, then again, I have to say, actually, no. I do like the first three. The last one was absolutely appalling, and I think I've watched once and put back in the cupboard. But the other, the other three, I, I still do come back to. I, I think I enjoy them all for their merits. I've, I've got to say, I'm looking forward to it. I don't mind. I don't. I'm not a big fan of the second film, but I don't mind it. I think it's uh, actually. I, I love the score of the second one. John Williams' score for that, I just think, is absolutely superb. Probably one of his best after uh, Empire Strikes Back, to be honest, in terms of emotion and and so on. As a film, I thought it was a bit stinted. I, and I enjoyed the third one, Crusade. I enjoyed that just because of the the buddy element to it, you know, with Connery and 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 Ford. Even though there wasn't a great deal of difference in ages between them, ten years, um, I think, wasn't it? Yeah, it it still worked, it, and 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 it was good. And it's good to have Denham Elliott in there as well because uh, I think he was he was always good for a little bit of comic relief as yeah, well. Yeah, you so. see, but that's the thing. He's not comic relief in Raiders. They make him into a buffoon in that one. It's another reason I hate the film. 
they turn him clearly in the first film he's a, he's a, he runs the museum but he used to be like Indy in the past he makes him comments about that in the Raiders you know I'd have gone with you if I was a bit younger you know you get the feeling he was an adventurer too in his youth uh, and yet they make him into a total idiot in, in Crusade and, and that's another reason why I dislike that film okay whatever Mark your thoughts <laughs> I, I actually think the second film if, if you look at it individually then it, it, it looks a little bit weak I, I admit that and it's it's all they don't really go anywhere you know it, it pushes more for kind of claustrophobia and typical horror and the like but I think if you look at it in terms of the trilogy I think they actually needed that I think if if he was always gallivanting around the globe and fighting Nazis I think you would just say well each adventure is basically the same I, I actually think that it breaks up the first and the third in in a way that you know perhaps you know you do need like we've we've talked about the Star Wars trilogy and, and I think all trilogies need that in some way they need to slightly change the pace and it's it introduced a couple of new characters and then you know you as you've mentioned you've got a great score it, it moved along at quite a good pace and then it kind of slowed right down and I, I just think it's it's a decent film and it had comedy in there but it just when you consider the high benchmark of the other two I think it's always going to come off the worst, but it's still got some great moments in there. Yeah, it's got a 200 foot roller coaster they built specifically for it. I mean, that's pretty cool on its own, I think, really. It was, it was very, very daring, wasn't it? Really, it was a very, very daring film to, to make it so dark, so incredibly dark compared to Raiders, which was all up, well, it wasn't upbeat, but it was, you know, fun adventure Saturday morning serial, which is what it was supposed to be. And then to go so dark, I think it was shocked a lot of people, really. Very, very daring. Yeah, I it's no surprise to discover that Lucas was in the middle of a divorce when he made that one. <laughs> but the problem is, you talk about interesting new characters. Well, you don't ever see them again, thank God. That annoying little kid short round and uh, Mrs. Spielberg screaming her lungs out for the entire movie. I could do without, frankly. But, I mean, that's kind of the point, though, isn't it? I mean, he's he's adventuring, he, you know, he's going around the globe, and so he's going to meet different characters. That was always kind of the point. You know, he's, he's the thread that goes throughout the entire series. You know, you, you can't get bogged down in, in saying and what one of the reasons why I don't tend to go along with your criticism of the of the changing of the Denon Elliot character is because I, I think everything else has to ultimately revolve around Indiana Jones. You know, that's really the only character that you, you care for. You know, you bring in this father son into play in the in the end, but really it's just a it's just used as a fulcrum to try and push off more comedy and more adventure. Which is all you really want. Well, these movies were never meant to be anything other than Saturday matinees, were they? It's, you know, the old cliffhanger adventure type thing where, you know, your heroes do impossible things and, and you go along with it because it's a bit of fun. Yeah, basically, it's 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 an archetype. It's it's a character. It's a comic book um, kind of character. And you could imagine almost Tom Selleck playing it. You know, it's it's that kind of figure, You particularly limited, but when Harrison Ford embodies the role he brought so much more to it and that's I suppose why why people love it and why some people dislike the second film because it does kind of rein in certain things and it, it, it follows almost too formulaic a route the, the second film is almost the most um, like a Saturday matinee in that it, it is pretty generic in places it seems to follow. There seems to be quite a lot of set pieces in it, isn't there? There's, it just seems some some of it seems a little bit disconnected. It's like, okay, what can we squeeze into this scene now? Then yeah, they've decided that they're going to have you know 
the 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 room that you can't escape from you know they're going to have you know the arch bad guy they are going to have you know the big set piece and they've they've decided all this kind of thing and at the end you know there are some pretty cringeworthy performances the little the little prince and the like is is a little bit odd and uh but you know again it's just rip roaring kind of saturday morning saturday matinee type adventure and that's yeah highly rated i think it's cliched and slightly racist to be honest <laughs> or oh, somebody put him to sleep okay moving on <laughs> to uh classic cinema from hitchcock dial m from murder uh, being released for the first time ever in 3D uh, on the 9th of October, Region A. We don't have a date for Region B at the moment. We're not sure um, when that will be released. It might be a different studio to the US. Not 100% sure on that. Uh, but Steve's going to fill us in with the history because he thinks he knows everything about cinema. So, Steve? <laughs> uh, yes. Um, Dialem for Murder was made by Hitchcock during the uh, towards the end of the, preview, uh, the 1950s 3D craze. Unfortunately, by the time it actually was released, uh, the craze had passed. So, in fact, Dial in for Murder was very rarely seen in 3D. It was predominantly seen in 2D, um, apart from a few special screenings. So this release on, on 3D Blu-ray is a major event because you're actually going to get a chance to see um, Dial in for Murder as it was shot by Hitchcock in 3D um, and see how the master handled 3D as a format. And uh, I, for one, am genuinely excited about this. No, I, I very much um, break the film. I'm like Steve. It's It's a... It's a big event to get this in 3D. I mean, Hitchcock, you know, story that he didn't really want to go along with it, that he was kind of pushed into it. And um, it's one of those films where if you listen to people's opinions of it, it's, it's almost directly linked to whether they saw it in 3D or 2D. People who saw it in 3D have often rated it. In 2D, uh, a lot of the, the main criticism has always been that it's too much like a stage play, that it's too confined, that it's too... Um, simplistic in in a lot of its its scenes um but that's really what hitchcock was going for it when he he uses 3d in the film which well i say when he uses 3d i'm hoping this is what i'll see when i see it in 3d which is all the objects in the foreground and the like the way in which he 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 set things up was to create this sense of claustrophobia you should be it's almost kind of voyeuristic you're looking in on this this apartment and it's primarily almost solely focused on this couple's apartment and so therefore it's kind of pushing you in through the window just to to view these things but he kind of keeps away from too many gimmicky shots and the like but there should be a few that actually do pop out from the screen yeah, I mean, Hitchcock's always been, was rather always a, a bit of a, you know, um, experimenter, because if you look at some of his other work, for example, Rear Window, you know, clearly that's based upon one gigantic set outside of Jimmy Stewart's window. You've got Rope, which was shot in a series of 20-minute takes. Um, so he, he was obviously up for a bit of experimentation, and clearly uh, I'd love to see him, you know, toying with 3D and, and see what he does with it as, as, a, as a medium. And you're right, uh, Mark, uh, you know, I, I get the impression, having seen it in 2D, there's a few obvious shots, uh, particularly, I think, scissors in someone's back that were clearly pointing at the camera in 3D. But uh, I'd be interested to see how, how much he layers the shots um, and, and what he actually does with it in terms of the format. Sorry, I was just going to say, it must have been incredibly difficult to make. Because obviously these days, films, when they're shot in 3D, the director can see that he's often viewing it live in 3D or certainly on the playback within a few seconds. This, you'd have had no idea really what it was going to look like and um, until probably uh, even after editing. Um, yeah, the, ca- the camera rig was, was massive. It was uh, two cameras facing each other, then going through a mirror. <laughs> 
Um, so uh, it must have been, I mean, one of the reasons I suspect why it was quite static in terms of its shots was it would have been really hard to actually move the camera and adjust the convergence. Um, yeah, 235mm yeah, and, and, and cameras. You've got 235mm cameras, yeah, in, in, in sync. So uh, really, really technically difficult, actually. But they're working on the on the convergence, aren't they, with the, the restoration and the like? Yeah, they, they, they've taken, obviously taken the two pieces of film and they've synced them perfectly and, you know, corrected them where they can and that sort of stuff. So, I mean, it, you know, this would be, should, this should be as good as this ever looked, actually, um, when it does come out. So, I mean, yeah, I'm really, I'm excited about it, actually. I will be interested to see what they do with the sound on this, though, because it was originally uh, mono. I'd be interested to see whether they leave it as that or whether they're going to do a, a Jaws thing and um, try and move it back into 5.1 or even a little bit more surround or, or really what their ideas are on that. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I haven't really got many hits. I've only got North by Northwest on Blu-ray, so I'm not quite sure what they did with the soundtrack for that. Um, but yeah, yeah, again, I, I mean, I'm less concerned about the sound. I mean, obviously, if you're purist, we'll say I want it in mono. But uh, with modern sound systems, it's not always great just to have it in a mono soundtrack. Perhaps give people a choice. It's easy to stick a mono soundtrack on as well as a, you know, a DTS soundtrack or whatever. I think for this type of film, I think there there is, you know, the the very real. Um, argument that mono is the way to go. I know often, you know, you can sniff and say, oh, well, it's just the purist's choice. But given the the static nature of the camera work and that you are supposedly, you're almost, let's say, it's almost voyeuristic, you are peering in at this this couple's apartment, you know, the sound really should be front and centre. Yeah, again, it's it's one of those interesting ones because something like Jaws, where they had a lot of the sound effects and things like that, which which had been stored separately, so it was relatively easy to restore that and turn that into a, a full surround mix. Obviously, this is going to be much harder to do, but I do think it does add to that sort of 3D experience if you have got a little bit of ambience kind of happening around you and you get a little bit more sense and a little bit more depth perception almost from the audio as much as you do from the picture. But uh, I do take your point that for the purist and for the way it was originally shot and envisaged by Hitchcock, that, that maybe mono is the way to go. I really do hope they make a good job of this, and and it being a Hitchcock title, I've I've got no um, uh, I've got no worries there. I don't think I think they're going to do a really good job of this, and it, it, it's always interesting from a history point of view. I mean, I'm always interested in movie history and what happened behind the scenes and so on. And, and talking about the way they filmed it, Steve in 3D using two 35 mil cameras i mean 35 mil cameras at that time are probably about three times the size of a 35 millimeter camera these days um it, it kind of takes you back to the days of um how the west was one you know how yeah, that, that was shot as cinerama and they couldn't do any close-ups because of the size of the camera the size of the lens and so on so when that was released on blu-ray they did an excellent job of uh, of putting the three the three different stems of of uh, film together to give give you that super wide, so be interesting to see how they handle this one, especially the three D element and and whether it works. Yeah, I, I, hopefully it'll sell well because then they might do some more of the classic fifties films in three D and also some of the eighties films that like Jaws three D, Amityville three D, Space Hunter, Adventure in the Forbidden Zone. I mean, all this stuff was shot with dual thirty five millimeter cameras, um, and you know I, I think you, historically of nothing else, it would be really interesting to see these things on three D Blu Ray. Yeah, the, the the good thing is, the good news is because they are recorded with two separate film tracks, it it, it makes the whole process of restoring it to three D and adjusting some of those. Uh, elements, if you like, quite a lot easier than if it was already as a uh, as a combined, or if it was filmed in the. In fact, in the way we film a lot of films digitally now, it's actually quite a lot harder to start disassembling some of those images than it ever is with two 35 mil strips. It's going to be interesting, and uh, like we say, that's 9th of October for the Region A release, and no details yet for the UK. But if we get that, we'll mention it 
in a podcast near the time. So that's the Blu-ray news. We're going to move on now to Blu-ray review and uh, to a new reviewer who joins us at AV Forums, Matt Jarvis. Matt, you've been um, with us for about a month now, uh, just settling into the, the review team. So how are things going for you? Yeah, really well, thanks. Um, thank you for making me feel very welcome. Um, done a sort of quite a mixed bag of reviews, which is really what I wanted to do, kind of as much as anything, sort of stretch myself a little bit in terms of the films that I wanted to see. Um, I do have a young family, so a lot of the stuff that ends up on my television probably started life as Disney, but I wanted to kind of sort of move away from the some of the more obvious films as well. Um, but also I have done Muppets and uh, Monster in Paris and some of the more mainstream kid stuff as well. So yeah, all good. And uh, obviously, you're new to the team. We're we're all getting to know you. What uh, what experience have you got in terms of film and so on? And uh, do you make a living out of what you do, or is this just a hobby for you? Um, betwixt and between, I've spent the last twenty years uh, working in the in the sound engineering field, and uh, and also, in fact, in in video projection and a, a little bit of. Um, uh, TV engineering as well. So reasonably wide. I started out as a design engineer and then I moved more into um, sort of video projection. So quite a lot down at, the, at what was Central TV Studios and eventually Carlton. So things like Body Heat and various programs used to make down there, used to do the projection for. So I got a good understanding of how TV programs were made. Been involved in a few feature films along the way doing um, video, f- uh, what, we, what we used to term as in-shot uh, video in the days with TV monitors. We had to sync them up to the projectors. I mean, fortunately, with LCD, that all died, and we no longer had to do that. So, I've kind of been involved in that. Um, but my main forte has always been concert sound. So, I've been involved in sort of very big PA systems for lots of different concerts, and done some pretty big and pretty impressive outdoor cinema showings as well, with 60-foot wide screens using uh, IMAX projectors and huge sound systems. Uh, Casablanca on the wall of a castle. That was quite an interesting one to do. So, yeah, it's 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 been uh, an interest, shall we say, and for quite a lot of the time, I would say, yes, yeah, probably be my main form of employment. Excellent stuff. So you're going to do uh, the Blu-ray review this month, extremely loud and incredibly close. This one did get a bit of a panning uh, from the critics. Was it deserved? Yeah, it depends upon what level you watch it at, I think. I think if you go into it and think, this is going to be a film about 9-11, then you're going to be very disappointed because really... The, the death of the of Tom Hanks, the father figure, could really have been for any reason. They've tied it into 9-11 because that was from the original book. But quite honestly, you know, he could have been knocked out. It could have been any... It could have been any accidental death or um, sudden death, and it really wouldn't have affected the way the rest of the film pans out. It's not really about Hanks, it's about his son, um, who is uh, borderline aspergic, he makes that point in the film, and it's really about um, him coming to terms of his father's death. His father's obviously been very important to him as he's been growing up and has been helping to overcome some of the disabilities that he's had around, whether it is Asperger syndrome or uh, autism, we never really know and he sort of helped him to communicate and I think and that's the real the the key message is getting a child to come out of his skin as much as anything else I think and obviously he's got to go through the grief process and part of that is the is the main plot of the film he finds a key that he believes belonged to his father and really it's his journey to try and find out what the key means. So in, in terms of a, a movie, if we take the 9-11 angle out of it, how, how does it play out as a movie without giving away spoilers? I mean, is, is it something that, that drew you in? Did you get enjoyment out of it? Was it was it something worth your hour and a half or whatever it was? 
Yeah, I think it is actually. I think it was unfairly pasted. I think you, you've got to watch it and you, 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 you need to watch it through the eyes of the child, so the eyes of the main character. I think if you watch it as that, it's it's almost Forrest Gump-like, if you like, in some of its simplicity, and that's kind of what I said in the review, in that his way of looking at the world is is much less sophisticated than that of many of us. So he's not quite giving hugs to strangers, but certainly he, he has a lack of social graces and he kind of says what he feels maybe a little bit more than he should do. So that's, that is quite an interesting dynamic. Um, there's a number of other really strong characters in there. You know, Sandra Bullock actually sort of acts and doesn't feel quite as two-dimensional as she does in some films, but doesn't overpower the main role. Same with Hanks. You know, again, he, he's brought into this film as the star, but, but really he's in it less than anybody. After all, the first thing you see is him falling out of the, uh, the Twin Towers. So after that, it's, his input really is limited to flashbacks. So it's all about the child, uh, Thomas Horn, who, who plays this, Os- this Oscar child. And the only living characters really then are his, his still living family. So you've got Mox... Uh, you then have Max von Sydow, who plays who he realises is his grandfather, but that's not something he's aware of at the start. And there's an interesting dynamic there with his grandfather no longer wanting to talk because of things that have happened in his past. So it's almost as if they're on a, if you like, a bit of a joint healing at some points. There's, there's a lot of layers to the film. I did enjoy it. I've watched it in one chunk, which is usually a good sign for me. If I sort of turn it off in the middle and go up and get and make a, a cup of tea, then it's usually not a great sign of the film. If I if I can sit down and watch it in one go, then that usually means I'm getting something out of it. Okay, so let's move over to the Blu-ray, uh, picture-wise. I mean, it was a fairly recent release. It was up for uh, uh, Oscar. It was also up for a couple of technical Oscars. So how did it look picture-wise? As, as you'd expect for any large uh, mainstream film, the pitch quality is absolutely superb. It was filmed digitally, uh, so there's very little film grain or anything like that visible. Anything like that will have been added at the intermediate stage, probably post-edit. But when you look at the film, it looks clean. It's all beautifully focused. There's very little fudging in there. I'm sure when you've watched some films, you've been aware that there's a little bit of solarising on a background where they've had to brighten up a character's face just by lifting the, the brightness on a film. Or the saturation maybe wasn't quite right and they've had to grade it quite heavily. I didn't get the feeling of any of that at all. It really is quite immersive. Now, whether that is a case that the storyline is so strong that you're not noticing anything, or whether it is that it is actually just a good film and it is well shot, but I went back and looked at it with sort of my more technical eyes on and I really did think that picture wise it was superb and again the same with the sound I was incredibly impressed with that as well it DTS HD master always sounds good I think and this is only 5.1 they haven't tried to squeeze any extra channels in but you know there's not a lot of uh, big explosions and that sort of thing that would benefit from that and the the rest of the ambience effects just sit really nicely in the background there's a couple of big hits in there that really make the most of the dynamic range but other than that it romps along quite happily the dialogue's nice and strong it's all really beautifully positioned so it's not all just blasting out of your center speaker they've really thought about that there's some little bits of off-camera speaking and they've positioned characters nicely within the room as well and it all matches up beautifully so yeah in, in terms of picture and sound I, I thought it was absolutely spot on does that mean it's not extremely loud <laughs> it is in places <laughs> <laughs> okay so uh, wrapping up the disc is the extras so what do we have as a as part of this package that was probably the most disappointing part for me um the the main 
the main extras are a 20 minute making of, which would be great if it wasn't quite so sycophantic. There's only so many times you can hear one actor congratulating another and how they had a great time going out and making pizza together. That sort of stuff, you just know it's, it's been made to try and in, improve or increase the, the feeling that it's made for the American market and it's all sort of soft and soppy. And I think that's where they went wrong with the marketing, really, was they tried to make this too much of a family, a moving family movie. And quite honestly, that's not what it's about. So I think that was uh, quite poorly done. There's another seven-minute um, extra that focuses on Thomas Horne. Really, it's, much, it's more of the same as people saying nice things about him. Um, and then after that, you've got a 44-minute piece made by, I think it was the son, or it may even have been a grandson, I'm not entirely sure, of Max von Sydow. And basically, it's just following him around and seeing an old boy who's in the twilight of his years making a movie, most of which consists of saying, I'm sorry, I didn't hear what you said. Would you mind repeating it, please? So um, that I, I I was not particularly impressed with the with the extras. It was pretty standard stuff. It, it felt like it had just been something thrown together for the for the Blu-ray rather than anything written specifically for it. Particularly after having done the Muppets the week before, where the extras on it are almost as good as the movie. You know, it's very disappointing when you come across ones that are really this poor. Thanks, yep. Matt. Uh, extremely loud and incredibly close. Uh, what did you give it final marks wise? I gave the movie eight. I gave it an overall eight. I gave picture and sound eight. And extras was the only really thing that I let it down, which I gave it a six for. Okay, so that review's now up on the website, avforums.com forward slash movies. So we're going to move over to uh, Simon, who went to the cinema today to see The Amazing Spider-Man, another reboot, another remake. Simon, was it naff or did you enjoy it? I've always had a soft spot for Spider-Man. He's been, apart from Batman, he's been my my favourite superhero from the comic books so i'm gonna be you know very forgiving um i did actually quite enjoy it um the the biggest problem that the film has is a is a very serious sense of deja vu simply because it's trying to tell the same story that was only told uh, 10 years ago or so they've changed the focus from how he became spider-man Raimi done it very very well they were terrific films we would ignore the, the, the last two we're just because we're talking about the first two films his first film was brilliant he, he, he's a terrific director but he's, uh, the, the screenplay was a, a bit of a, a legacy left over from James Cameron's involvement and that means he had the, the, the webs shooting from his own wrist which was never something in the comics apart from the later ones the original guy developed his own webbing and his own shooters Okay, that's something that they've resurrected for this film, and I think it's brilliant. Although it, there's the, the question is always, you know, how could one person develop webbing? You know, it, it doesn't seem right. So they they circumvent that by saying Oscorp developed it, and he just developed the shooters. So that was pretty neat, and a quite quite a good little trick there. What's it, Maguire? Toby Maguire as as uh, the original of the Raimi's Spider Man. I actually quite liked him. Um, he had the, the, the right sort of geeky vibe going on about him. He was quite clever. He demonstrated that he was quite um, clever when he was talking to Norman Osborn and stuff. He, he had quite a good brain on his shoulders. But I thought he was really, really whiny. He was actually quite a whiny kid, which is something that... Um, uh, Peter Parker never had in the comics and another thing they never really pushed was his um, quick wit and and sort of verbal repartee if you like with when he was fighting his uh, his baddies in this in in the, in the original the, the Green Goblin he didn't really have that that verbal sparring that it, that they that they got from the comics and again with this the the new amazing spider-man the amazing spider-man being the title because that's what the original comic was called the amazing spider-man hence they've gone back to the original they failed to capitalize on that as well the 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 guy they've got playing it 
he looks good. He kind of looks the part. You know, he's got the glasses, he's got the, the hair, he's reasonably skinny, so he kind of looks the, looks the part, but he, he doesn't quite come across as having the, the geeky aspect that Parker need it, needs. You know, he needs to be that sort of vulnerable kid before he turns into to Spider-Man. The, the way he becomes Spider-Man, obviously... Is is the same. You ha- he has to be bitten by a spider. Okay, that that is essential to to the character. It happens, but in a different way to um, the the Raimi one. Obviously, it's uh, a, a, a genetically engineered spider. Um, but the the reason for it is because Doc uh, Kurt Connors um, is trying to develop um, a, a way to grow his arm, which is direct, you know, straight out of the comic books. And he's trying to um, splice genes from animals and and um, humans, get them together to, to give humans the ability to regenerate limbs or, or to regenerate certain hormones in their body to stop Parkinson's, etc, etc, etc. What they did change was how quickly he became Spider-Man. Basically, he was bitten, fell asleep on a train, woke up, and he's he, he suddenly got these amazing abilities. He can... F- Jump around, jump around all around the train um, with super agility, uh, without even because he was a skateboarder. Essentially, I think that's what they were trying to put put forward. That he, he's he's you know quite quick witted, but and he's a skateboarder, so he can now leap around the train and hang on to the ceiling and spin around poles and beat people up. I kind of preferred the the, the his motivation in in the Raimi movies. Mm. Uh, I get the impression that what they've decided to do in this film, in order to differentiate it from the Raimi movies, is particularly to emphasise the romance between him and um, and Gwen Stacy, which, to be honest, is a good thing because I'll watch anything Emma Stone's in, particularly if she's in a short skirt and high boots. And and from what I've read, and I haven't seen it yet, but what I've read, um, the, the romantic element is handled very well by Mark Webb, uh, no pun intended, that is his surname, uh, who directed Five Days of Summer, which is another really good movie. And, um, and and apparently he, he's handled the relationship between between Peter and Emma Stone very well. Well, yeah, to to a degree, they uh, they flirt at the beginning. They get together. He confesses to being Spider-Man to her about two thirds of the way through by um, spinning a web on her and pulling him to water. Um, That's not meant to be euphemism or something, is it? Uh, no, absolutely not. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> This is only a twelve. Okay, just number. checking. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, in that aspect, worked. Um, but I prefer the way she was portrayed in the comic books. She hated Spider-Man because she blamed Spider-Man for the death of her father. But it doesn't lay on any of the guilt. That's just what really didn't annoy me. But it's 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 a different way of interpreting the same character. They have to try and split away. Go and try by trying going back to the original comics. But the driving force behind him didn't really sit quite right with me. Having said all that, of course, the film itself is really quite spectacular. Um, I didn't manage to see the 3D one. I only saw the 2D film, even though it was shot natively in 3D. And you can tell it's going to be quite good. Um, It does get a bit frantic in parts when um, when, when the fighting's going on and when they're flying through the air, which would probably look quite good, I think. But there's a few point-of-view shots that I think might be a little bit shaky and a little bit too in your face um and the, of course they leave the very 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 best to end when he flies up in front of the moon and squirts a web straight towards the screen that's going to be quite something i think i always found a problem with the raimi films was that the, the villains were all photosympathetic they were kind of like you know pushed into a corner and made villainous but by, by circumstances rather than because they were genuinely villainous and i tend to prefer a villain who's you know black black wearing villainous black heart who you can absolutely hate um whereas in certainly in the case of doc ock and um and Norman Osborn to a degree, and uh, and the Sandman, all of them were, were genuinely sympathetic. 
uh, and therefore you didn't hate them uh, in the way that you would hate, uh, I don't know, traditional villains like Darth Vader in Star Wars, not later on, forget the other stuff, but certainly in Star Wars, he's a traditional, you know, villain who you can boo and hiss at. Um, whereas the ones in, in the Raimi movies d- tended to be too sympathetic, I think. Does Reese Evans have the have the, the depth of character to pull this off then? Because I've never seen him as a particularly deep actor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, you, you can get what I'm saying. He, he's he's okay. Yeah, he's okay. Um, but he just doesn't seem to... Add... I don't think it's him as an actor that's the problem. It's the way that it's been written, that he's not... doesn't quite have the, the villainous aspect. You know, his grand plan, it all seems a bit rushed and a bit haphazard. Um, I mean, it's, uh, the clues are all there. They're all laid. I mean, it's a two and a half hour film, and they lay the clues on, so you know where it's going to go. You know, the the big oh, can I say that big dispersion aspect for the the cloud that he wants to turn everyone into. I mean, that's in the first ten or fifteen minutes of the film, so you know, oh, that's going to be useful, isn't it? He's going to use that later. Um, he's okay. He's okay. Um, the, I'll tell you what is good though the, the chemistry between the two main the two main actors um, Andrew Garfield and Emma Stone they, they, they do work really well together yeah I believe that uh, I would give it probably a 7 out of 10 um, I, I enjoyed it I enjoyed it immensely because I just love Spider-Man but being objectively as, as, as a film it doesn't quite tick all the right boxes for me as, as, as a fan of Spider-Man the comic books yeah if, if you could somehow <laughs> Mel Gene Splice, Raimi's version and this version together, you would get the ultimate Spider-Man, I think. If you can get the emotional content that you have with Raimi's death of Uncle Ben and what the driving factor of Peter Parker, why he becomes who he becomes, um, with the sort of action-adventure more kind of develop his own web, jumping around, really, really good web use, really, really good web use, who are... Um, with the Amazing Spider-Man, and I think you could get the you know an Ultimate Spider-Man film out of it. Um, I'm sure it won't take the the fanboys long to splice the two movies together on YouTube. You know how they normally yeah. do, and come up with their own cut. Now, this really does not appeal to me at all, and it doesn't appeal to me because it's only ten years since we had the last incarnation of Spider-Man. I'm not a big comic book fan, and this has no appeal whatsoever for me. So, I, I mean, is Hollywood? Taking the Michael here, uh, you know, why are they the rebooting this series so quickly? Um, when, when, like, like I said, ten years ago, was it ten years ago for the first film? It was ten years, two thousand two. So you know, it just seems to come around too quickly. I mean, are they doing it for copyright issues, or are they are they just trying to make a, a quick buck because everyone in Hollywood is so scared to put money on something original, they want to stick to what they know is going to at least bring some money into the studio. The the official party line is that um, the screenwriters, Raimi and the producers, couldn't come up with a decent enough uh, fourth part to the trilogy. They couldn't get a, a decent enough story. Um, so they thought, so producers went, right, okay, well, we'll cut our ties here, go with a brand new set of um, stars, filmmakers, crew, essentially, and we'll restart it. I think it's probably more to do with money than anything else. Like you say, Phil, it's uh, the, the, everyone knows who Spider-Man is. The, the, the first three films were incredibly successful. Um, the problem being is it's just a little bit too soon to be doing an original story, an origin story. Again, you know? I think, I, you I think actually, w- Phil's, 
got a point. I, I do think that if they hadn't made the film, they would, the copyright would have gone back to um, Marvel as well. Another reason why they've rushed it through. Like you say, they couldn't come up with a decent fourth movie, so they've gone back. They had, they had to make a movie, though, um, in order to retain the uh, copyright. Um, otherwise, I think it reverted back to Marvel, who obviously have been having enormous success on their own with, with things like um, Iron Man and then the Avengers. So, uh, yeah, I think Sony had to make the movie uh, in order to retain the rights. So it's, a heck of a gamble, it's a heck of a gamble. I mean, $215 million is the estimated budget for it. This, this was no low budget. Let's get something out there to keep to retain the copyright. Uh, yeah, but they'll make. I mean, I'm, I'm sure it'll make back its budget at least. There'll be no, people will go and see. It. I, I think. Yeah, I, I agree with Simon that and, and Phil that ten years after the first Raimi movie, it's it's far too quick for a reboot. But then they rebooted Batman with Batman Begins in 2005, and that was after Batman and Robin in 1997. So that was eight years since that had finished. Um, they're rebooting Sp- Superman for next year with Man of Steel. They rebooted Judge Dredd uh, this, this year as well. Um, so, you know, it can it can work. Certainly Batman Begins worked. I mean, that was a great reboot. Um, and there were problems with the Raimi Spider-Man, which I think Simon's covered quite well. Um, so I'd like to see a, a more, a, 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 a film more like the comic, you know, with, with Peter Parker being quick-witted and, and, and making snappy jokes. Uh, and being more of a teenager, because in, in the comic he's very much you know, a high school kid. And uh, in the Raimi movies, he goes from to being at university and then working within the three movies pretty quickly. So that would that would be nice to see that more. But but yeah, do we really need another you know, Spider-Man reboot so soon? No, I'm, I'm sure it's purely financial. It's not just the Spider-Man reboot, it's everything else that you've just mentioned there. Um, they, these characters seem to come around again and again and again. Now, maybe they are a guaranteed income stream from the studios but yeah i mean how much more do we have to take of this why why can't hollywood take a risk i mean all right disney tried to do it with john carter and got the fingers burnt maybe that's put a few few of the big studios off but you know as 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 a film fan and so on i mean where where are the good films at the minute it's all all the same formula it's all the same characters it's all reboots i i'm i'm waiting for the next matrix or the next big film that's going to change things and 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 so far over the last i don't know four or five years i think that film's come along well the only one i could think of phil that was relatively original uh um, and wasn't based on a franchise or existing work or book or anything was inception which uh was 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 fairly unique um and speaking of inception of course you've got uh christopher nolan who's made it quite clear that the dark knight rises is going to be his last uh, batman film it will complete the cycle the trilogy of batman movies and they're already talking about rebooting batman <laughs> on the one hand we're kind of lamenting spider-man for being a cynical cash-in but on the other hand you know we were raving about uh the avengers you know so you know six of one half dozen of another that could have been seen as a one of the most cynical cash-ins of just get every superhero lump them together and make a throw a big budget at it but it just so happens to have you know a, a great script you know so it, it's it's i can see where it's it's tough to try and differentiate them for, from a studio's point of view when you see such a massive success like that and you say well look we've got this franchise we've got this global icon that people will go to see anyway if they think that they've got some way to try and make it unique if they think they've got some kind of a hook there then you know they're going to try their arm but it it, it does sound like they've very much kind of 
gone back to the standard origin story which is it, it's almost it, it's it's becoming a cliche now for almost all the superhero characters i mean i phil's got a point though which is that hollywood has become terrified of, of taking any risks um especially after john carter which would was at least slightly different uh, and bombed horribly. I mean, I mean, Mark Commode made the point that these days, you know, if you've got a big enough marketing budget, you can't flop. Well, Disney proved him wrong on that one. Although Mark Commode would also say that John Carter didn't have an established star in it. And the trick is to have big effects, big marketing budget and a big star. It's got the point now, yeah, there's, there's no original filmmaking being done. It's, it's all just either existing franchises, uh, remakes, reboots, prequels um, or sequels or, um, you know, or, or adaptations of existing works, you know, books or comics. Um, and it's kind of depressing in a way that no one is taking, you know, if you look back in the 70s, for example, and the films that were made during, during that period of time. You know, and and how risk taking and and original and unique and amazing. Even the, the films people would class, you know, blockbusters like Jaws or Star Wars were massive risks and, and you know, and really well made movies. It's these days you look at the, the sort of stuff that's coming up in the next year, and you think, well, okay, the Hobbit's coming out, but that's you know, I'm looking forward to that. But again, it's an adaptation of, a, of an established work, and obviously it's following on from the Lord of the Rings. So you know, you think, well, where's where's the original filmmaking coming from? Where's 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 the, you know, small budget or even medium budget movies that it it just seems to be, remakes and uh, and comic book movies and comedies for kids. What we need to do is we need to take all the bankers, and put them into Hollywood so they take all the risks, and then take Hollywood and put them into the banks because they're not taking any risks at the moment, <laughs> and we'd solve the world's problems. I'd love to know though the stats, the breakdowns of say different Blu-ray markets and which Blu-rays tend to sell the most because I think we're also looking at a time where people's TVs are bigger than ever, you know, you can get affordable you know, 42 inch screens seems, you know, perfectly normal for a living room these days you can get cheap Blu-ray players and the kind of thing that you want for demo material, the kind of thing that you tend to say, right, well I've splashed out this money um, is going to be the the big colourful blockbusters, anything attached to something that you really thought, I, I'd love to see that. I'd love to you know, get a Blu-ray of that. I'd love that to be made. And that tends to come down to already established franchises. You know, when people think about buying that big screen, they're, they're very rarely thinking about, you know, a small art house film or something that they want to see on it. Sadly. I think that also, that also comes down to your Sorry, that also comes down to your distribution network. Though the majority of home Blu-ray buyers are buying them in Tesco's with their shopping on a Saturday, and who are stocking maybe twenty-five or thirty Blu-ray titles. But, but even even your point there, Mark, it, it it it's like I'm not talking about art house movies. I'm talking about where's the next Matrix? You know, where, where's the next one that that takes a few genres, mixes them together, and comes out with something that's that's genuinely original uh, yeah I, mean, I just think that i think hollywood's become incredibly frightened of uh, the budgets have become so m massive now i mean when you're talking about 200 to 300 million dollars for a movie plus uh marketing costs you know um, plus prints and everything else that goes with it you know you're spending maybe 400 million you know you've got to make 800 million before you've been looking at a profit so you know no one no one wants to take a risk because it's not worth their jobs I mean, let's look at a different angle. If if uh, if Jaws didn't exist in '76 and somebody was going to make it now, it wouldn't be the same film, would it? Because no, it would be because nothing the, like the be, film we got. Because of the tools that are available, because uh, it's so easy nowadays to throw money at the screen and so on. So, do you think it's gotten to a stage where it's gotten so easy to throw money at this at the, at the screen, 
and it's so easy to use these um, well-known characters that that this is where the laziness is coming from. It needs somebody maybe to go back old school style of, of filmmaking. Possibly, I think you make a valid point there, Phil, which is that people, uh, filmmakers, they kind of um, dumb down for the audience these days. I mean, if someone made Jaws now, you would not get the film that was made in 75. You wouldn't get that whole long sequence in the middle of the movie where they just basically stop and start telling stories and you get the Indianapolis speech. You wouldn't get that in a modern blockbuster. You'd have loads of shots of a CGI shark. You'd have, uh, you know, gore. you'd have seen the shark right at the beginning, at the beginning in, in, in the, when you attacks the girl off the beach in the, in the, you know, in the midnight swim. You'd have had loads more of that. I mean, we, obviously we didn't see the shark because it didn't work and, and therefore it was nothing for Spielberg to show, but I think it's all the better for that. But I just think the modern filmmaking has become, it would have been dumbed down. It would have been, uh, you know, it would have been thrown in stupid jokes. It would, ju- it would just be, it would have been bloody awful, frankly, if it was it made would have been, Yeah, it, it would have been a, a PG-13 American teen whitewash rubbish. It would have been awful. Like Piranha 3D. Like, well, yeah, but um, Piranha 3, it would, yeah, that's the kind of thing I was aiming for. But the thing is, I didn't mention that because that was, um, had a, had an R, didn't it? it? It put loads of... It was a hard uh, R, yeah, yeah. As they would say in the business. <laughs> I, was, I was quite hard watching it. It was, uh, it, it, that's a great movie. I mean, it doesn't, not take itself very seriously. It's just meant to be fun, lots of TNA and loads of blood and gore. And I really, and I'm really looking forward to, to Piranha 3D double D. Um, <laughs> Just because there's a scene where you see Ving Rhames go, bring me my legs. I mean, I'm thinking, yeah, I, I'm so there for that movie. That's, that's going to be my film of the summer, I think. But, but getting back to the point in hand, um, one area that, that tends to um, feed Hollywood now and again is the Asian market, Mark. Um, and it has been well known for, for coming up with original ideas or ideas based on on Asian um, philosophy and that kind of thing. Is is there anything that we should be looking out for in terms of Asian cinema that's that's maybe going to be the next big thing to sort of kick Hollywood on? Because basically, I mean, The Matrix, a lot of that was based on on Japanese uh, Japanese comic heroes, yeah, that kind of thing. Bong, so, bong, yeah. So, is, is there anything coming that way, Mark? Well, I think you look at something like um, like The Raid, and you see uh, a film that's basically shown the West how to do action films. And it's it's properly in the in the blockbuster mould, um, but I think in recent years, in terms of Asian cinema, we've seen a lot of um, more ponderous um, war films and the like. Um, there's, I get, I think all all markets to a certain extent are just going down the road of trying to keep things basically profitable. I mean. Things like Takashi Miike's um, adaptations of Thirteen Assassins and the like, and um, Harakiri, he's still using basically his name. You know, that's what's going to propel things forward. But he's managing to take a story that people wouldn't have necessarily assumed he would have wanted or he would have gravitated towards, and therefore he's able to tell something a little bit different but keep it in the blockbuster mold or slow things right down i think essentially what you're seeing is if if you want the same thing to happen in the west you've got two real choices number one someone's got to really take a chance on a director who wants to do things differently as you you know you mentioned things like kick-ass um you need that a different a screenwriter who's willing to to go along with that vision or you need an established name to just basically push things and say here's a completely original story and and like Steve said you know Inception from Christopher Nolan was probably kind of 
one of the last big attempts to try and make something new, a new story, and something that, although it felt familiar in places, um, was just original. You know, we're we're not really seeing that anywhere, sadly. What about Prometheus? Oh, shut up! <laughs> that, that's that's a, that's a good example, Simon, of of how filmmaking has changed. Because uh, we obviously we discussed Prometheus last month. I watched Alien at the weekend. You know, takes its time, builds up slowly. You know, in Prometheus, bang, bang, bang. You're straight at the planet. Straight out on the, out the on on the. As soon as you get to the planet, they're straight out to go investigate the ship. Whereas in Alien, you know, they take time to land. They don't investigate. They behave like real people would in that situation. And and he's not afraid to take his time. And, and you know, and there's lots of nice long shots of the corridors and make it create a sense of atmosphere. None of that in Prometheus. None of that at all. It's just all get you there as soon as as quickly as we can. Get the money shots on the screen. And that's just modern filmmaking, unfortunately. I mean, they're already talking about remaking The Raid uh, for an American market. I've, I've watched a trailer for, Ju- for Dread, sorry, not Judge Dread, um, which uh, I don't know if it's a coincidence or, or if it was intentional, but it's basically the same as The Raid, where they're stuck inside a block and they have to fight their way up it, um, as opposed to being stuck inside a tower block and having to fight their way up it. Um, so, so you know, even, even there, you know, the, the one decent film in kind of Asia in the last year or so that people, you know, has been quite influential is, is already being copied and, and parodied. So... I tell you, the scary thing is, is that when you think about the term summer blockbuster now, it you don't even really apply it. I, in my mind, I don't apply it to Jaws anymore. Jaws, frankly, feels like an auteur piece. It feels like, you know, it, it just doesn't sit alongside. If you were to put it in a category in blockbuster of 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 summer blockbusters, it just it's not going to sit alongside the kind of things that we're making today. Partly because it was never a summer blockbuster. It's been called that in in retrospect, but uh, at the time it was uh, obviously it was adapted from a from a popular book. But I think at the time it was a pretty big risk. I mean, it was Spielberg's second film as a director, uh, as you know, theatrical film. Um, you know, the shot didn't work. They were way over budget, shooting for months and months and months at Martha's Vineyard. Uh, you know, it was a bit of a risk, and people weren't sure it was going to be a hit when it came out. You know, it was though. Uh, it it yeah, created hit. summer blockbusters, didn't it? <laughs> yeah, that that came afterwards. Um, so it's class as the first one, but it wasn't. It was never a blockbuster in the way that the modern ones are, where you know you've got a tentpole movie, you've got a specific date you're aiming for. So July Fourth weekend. So Spider-Man opens today, right in the states. July Fourth weekend opening. Lots of marketing, big marketing budget. I mean, that's the way it's become now. Even Star Wars, you know, wasn't a summer blockbuster. It came out in May. It was th- everyone thought it was going to be a bomb. You know, no. It, it's not the same as these films now, where studios put four hundred million into it, and it has to be a hit, or people are going to lose their jobs. Um, a la John Carter, um, you know that that's what I would class as a modern a modern blockbuster. Summer blockbuster is a film with a specific uh, release date, and and everything's geared towards that. And they've got all the tie-ins, you know, with the fast food chains and everything else. That's that's what it's become, and you know, and they, they have to reach the largest demographic they possibly can. So from ten to fifty, uh, but particularly the sort of ten to twenty-five year olds, just the people that go to the movies basically. And you have to appeal to a wide audience. You can't offend anyone, so you can't make anything that's remotely controversial. Uh, you know, you end up with this bland popcorn rubbish that's just spewed out every summer. I mean, God, I, I hope to God that Dark Knight Rises is good because if it isn't, then, then this summer's ruined, basically. <laughs> I'm sure it'll be fine. Summer's my favourite day of the year. <laughs> <laughs> and Simon spent it in the cinema. <laughs> uh... <laughs> so, uh, unfortunately, we've run out of time. Uh, I'm sure we'll come back to this discussion uh, as things progress over the summer and we get a chance to see the big films that everybody's waiting to see 
um, as they're released. And, and like uh, Simon said, the next big one comes out before the end of July, so I'm sure we'll be talking about that in next month's podcast. Don't forget you can follow us on Twitter at AV Forums. We're also on Facebook, which is facebook.com forward slash AV Forums. There is a new movie news section coming to the website soon, so keep your eyes open for that. And don't forget the movies website where we review lots of new Blu-rays every week, and that is avforums.com forward slash movies. So all I need to do now is thank the guys, Stephen, Mark, Simon, and Matt. Thanks very much, guys. Thank you, Phil. Cheers, Phil. Thank you. Cheers, Phil. And this is Phil Hinton saying thanks for listening and we'll see you again next month. The AV Podcast was presented by Phil Hinton. Original music by Andrew Bassett and Richard Cosgrove. The AV Podcast was mixed and produced by Phil Hinton and the senior producer was Stuart Wright. All content including sound clips and music is copyright material and featured for promotional use only. The AV Podcast is copyright M2M Limited.